church at Colossae. We'll begin our reading this morning, uh, again in verse 15. We left off last week, uh, beginning this portion of the text. We'll begin our reading in verse 15 and read through verse 20 this morning. Who, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, we pause with thanksgiving in our hearts and praise on our lips unto you for your goodness, for your favor unto us, Lord, recognizing we are unworthy. We, are, we have nothing of which we can offer you, Lord, that would bring glory unto you or would please you or would satisfy you. But Father, we thank you for the provision of our Lord Jesus in whom you are satisfied. And we thank you that we are complete in him and that you have uh, made us to be accepted in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his perfect work of redemption. And so as we pause these moments to open the word of God, I ask, Father, that your spirit may uh, use the truth of your word, illuminate our hearts, our minds. Lord, may you give us ears that are open to hear, and may we have eyes that have the ability to see, and hearts that are able to receive, minds to discern and understand the truth that is before us of the revealed Jesus. And Lord, in all things, we ask that you truly might receive the glory. May we acknowledge as your people today that have gathered together in fellowship to to edify one another and Lord, to corporately come together acknowledging, confessing that you alone are worthy of our service, of our worship, of our lives. May we do so, Lord, with, again, grateful hearts, unto you because you've made the way possible for us to enter in to your very presence through our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We thank you for this work that you've done, and we just pray that we might have attentive hearts to your word and minds, and Lord, that your will be accomplished in all things as Christ, the preeminent one, is revealed and declared through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. Last week, we began our study of looking into this portion of the text, beginning in verse 15, uh, in, in which Paul is declaring that Jesus Christ is unique. And we've seen in previous studies how that he is the only one qualified to make us meet in the previous verses of this chapter. You'll see where Paul expresses that truth, that he has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And when Paul wrote and stated that he has made us meet, it literally is stating that he has qualified us. He has made us to be qualified. Not that we are qualified. And again, I refer back to Ephesians when Paul wrote and said that in chapter 1 that he has made us accepted in the beloved. We are not acceptable. We do not become acceptable. It's that God has made us to be accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the same truth is being stated here in a different manner, but different language, but the same truth that God has made us to be qualified or qualified us in the person 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's qualified us who were otherwise disqualified by Adam, original sin in the Garden of Eden. We are born inherently sinful and wicked. We have a sin nature of which we cannot escape. And we find ourselves under the condemnation, under the wrath of God as human beings apart from Christ. And we are disqualified by Adam, but we're also unqualified by our own actions, by our own sinful nature that is part of us. So while Adam disqualified us, we are unqualified in that we can never meet that standard. And there's nothing we can do, again, to satisfy or appease God. But again, the the joy of that is that, and the flip side of that is that God has already been satisfied in his son. So he has made us accepted in his son, and he has made us qualified or to be qualified in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've asked and answered several questions within this portion of our study. First, for what has God qualified us? Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in line. Just brief review, uh, God has made us qualified in Jesus Christ to share in the lot or the portion which God has determined to give his saints, those who are believers, those whom he has reconciled to himself, having again made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1.3, Paul also makes very clear, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And so God has already given us all spiritual blessings in the person of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the lot. It is the Lord that is our portion. Isn't it amazing that people today who don't, some of them are not regenerated, that they're, they're unregenerate. Others may actually be born again and yet be ignorant and never been taught or never studied themselves or understand how to study to understand these truths that people are always asking God for something, always asking God, always looking to get something. Listen, there is nothing greater that can be given than that which has been given in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all spiritual blessings are given to us in him. The scripture goes on to tell us, Paul explains, that we are, um, and that we are uh, partakers of the inheritance of God, but yet we are heirs of God and that God has given to us of himself and from him and all good things come from him. But then he also says not only heirs of God, but he said, and joint heirs with Christ. And that is really the key of everything Paul is saying here and as well in Ephesians concerning this inheritance and the blessings of God. We have not only received of God or from God, but we have received just as the Lord Jesus Christ has received of the Father because we are in him and he is in us. And so this is the truth of the God in Christ and making us meet, qualifying us, making us to be qualified in Jesus in whom the blessing is even given. And so we cannot receive that blessing of God apart from the blesser himself, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, I ask the question, how has God qualified us? In verses 13 and 14, we see that. I won't read the verses again. You can if you'd like. But they state that we had to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light or the kingdom of Christ. And then second, in verse 14, we had to be forgiven of sin by redemption through the sacrifice of Christ. And there's so much to say about that. We've already dealt with that moving, so we will move forward. And over the past two weeks, we've been examining this question, the third question, which was and is, what was required in one to qualify us? So we've been qualified, made to be, meet to be partakers, made to be qualified to receive of the inheritance of God in this, of the saints in light. How has he done that? Through the sacrifice of his son, through offering his son as redemption, the atonement for our sins. 
And then that leaves the question, and what was required in one to be able to qualify? So I might say it like this. What is it that qualified the qualifier? If we are going to be qualified, if we can't qualify ourselves, then what was necessary in one who would be able to qualify or to make us meet to be partakers, to qualify us, to redeem us, to become inher- in, in, uh, benefactors, to receive the inheritance of the saints in light? Last week, we began our examination of the unique Christ, as I mentioned. And the adjective unique, I believe it's important to define this for you, is defined as, number one, existing as the only one or as the sole example, single, solitary, and type of characteristic. And two, having no like or equal, unparalleled and incomparable. Jesus Christ is unique in every way, as I mentioned last week. And the character and person of Christ is incomparable with any other. Furthermore, I ask the question, how is it that Jesus is unique then? And within this portion of Paul's epistle, he explains to us the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ as the only one capable of making us meet or qualifying us before the Heavenly Father. And we began this portion of our study expounding upon the most significant of the uniqueness uh, of the truths of the uniqueness of Christ with this one foundational truth as Paul begins in verse 15. Let's look at that again. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Which, it's interesting and it's fitting, obviously, and I would expect nothing other and neither should you, that Paul would begin explaining the uniqueness of Christ by, first of all, expounding upon the uniqueness of his person or his being. Again, if it were not true that Jesus is unique in his person, then nothing that Jesus did would have any significance whatsoever. Anyone can die. In fact, we all will. And some have and will die for others sacrificially. It does nothing for the soul in making it fit to meet God the Father. It does nothing to prepare us for judgment just because someone else dies for us. So we find Jesus Christ is unique in his being, in his person, when he says who? Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So how is that unique? Well, first of all, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There is no other person, no other being that, of, of which such a claim could be made and it be true. We discovered that first, apart from the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh, we obviously could not relate to God the Father. God the Father sent his Son in the flesh that he might then have a relationship with his creation that otherwise could not exist because man was disqualified by Adam and unqualifies himself for this relationship with God the Father. And second, apart from the manifestation of Jesus Christ in the flesh, we could not have access to or, again, a relationship with God the Father. So God relates to us through his Son, and we can relate to God, and we can have access to him and boldness before him because of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, who is still, to this day, in a glorified body with the Father. There is no other like Jesus Christ. He is not only the image of the invisible God, but also the fullness of God. We could not see God. We would not be able to see him. Again, I want to refer to this. I mentioned this last week briefly. I want to, again, uh, review this and, and 
for your, for your consideration concerning this matter. When Moses was on the mount and he says to the Lord, I, I want to see your glory, if you recall. And the Lord says, okay, Moses, I will put you into the cleft of the rock. I will cover the cleft and I will pass by. And the scripture says that, God, that Moses saw the hinder parts of God. And what that means is he saw the remnants of that which was left behind of the glory of God as God passed by. So what it's saying is that Moses was not capable of taking into view the fullness of the glory of God. And even as God allowed him to see of himself, of God, we know that Moses comes off the mount, and when he comes off the mount, his face is aglow. He is literally glowing because of the glory of God to which he had been exposed. But yet we know in Jesus Christ, we are told, John chapter 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the Father in the begotten. We beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. The scripture also tells us that the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So God has demonstrated, manifested, revealed his glory in his Son. There is none other as he is. He is the fullness of God. In chapter 119 of Colossians we read, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Chapter 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, the image of the invisible God. God in the flesh. The Son of God. Not a created being. A manifestation of of the Word which has been one with the Father from before time ever began. John 1, again, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now this is not, and we'll see this further, this is not monotheism. It is Trinitarian monotheism. It is understanding that there is the teaching of Scripture, that there is one, God, but yet there are three distinct persons of the Godhead. And they exist, or they dwell, the word exist is not really the proper term. They are eternally one being, but yet three distinct persons. Not three distinct manifestations, not three distinct demonstrations. No, it's saying literally that there are three distinct persons. Again, I've said this to you many times. We have no means, there is no way that I or anyone else can begin to give you any earthly illustration to begin to attempt to illustrate the eternal Godhead. And that's part of the mystery of this. That's part of the awe of who this God is, is that we are not able to wrap our heads around him. He has revealed himself. He has manifested himself. He has declared himself. But yet we cannot comprehend the Godhead. And there is no illustration, no matter what anyone says, there is no illustration that rightly illustrates the eternal Godhead. You cannot do it. And that's part of the beauty of who God is, recognizing he is beyond our understanding, our comprehension, our illustrations. So this morning, we are going to continue through this passage, which we read and not get very far into, but we'll move along as we can. And see how Paul builds upon the uniqueness of the person of Christ, moving now to see his unique authority. He does not have some authority or power, but he has all power and authority. You know, at the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus, the scripture says that all power has been given unto him in heaven and 
and earth. Not some power, all power. So Jesus Christ is unique in his being and his person, but he's also unique in his authority or in his power. Look at verse 16. For by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. To summarize the gravity of all that is stated in this verse, we could simply say, and don't think that we're about to pray and be dismissed because we're not. But I could simply say to you, to summarize everything that's being stated here, Jesus Christ is Lord. (laughs) Because that's really what Paul is saying here. But he goes into more detail, of course, not full detail, but more detail. And and we find within this verse, Paul expounds somewhat of the details of this truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The unique authority or power of Christ is seen in creation, and Paul gives us that as an example in this passage. As I've often mentioned, creation was not accomplished contrary to what you may have heard or read or stories that are told. Salvation from the biblical account was not accomplished in biblical record by God molding and shaping matter with his hands. Again, I remind you, God is a spirit, and a spirit has no hands. And, and of course, theologically speaking, we refer, the scriptures refer to God, even the Father, as a spirit, as though in, in, in what is referred to as anthropomorphic terms, which means, of course, that it is characteristics of man that are attributed to God so that we have some understanding that we otherwise would have no understanding of what's being said, or not at least as much of an understanding. I'll give you another example. The scriptures speak, of course, how that uh, God uh, gathering uh, as a mother would gather her chicks under, under wing, you know, so God gathering. Well, God doesn't have wings either. That's zoomorphism, another theological term that's attributing now animal characteristics to God to give us some understanding. The point is God the Father does not have wings and he does not have hands, and he does not have ears nor eyes. And, and so the scriptures speak in these terms so that we can have some understanding of something otherwise we would have no understanding of. And when you think about a, a chick being, uh, or a hen gathering her chicks under wing, in reality what we're being told is that God's spirit is brooding over or hovering amongst. Now this is Old Testament scripture. He dwells within us now, the Holy Spirit does. But Old Testament, that the spirit of God was brooding over or he was hovering over. But listen, that does not nearly convey the comfort as that of a mother hen gathering her chicks under wing. We have warmth and protection and hidden, and we get that. But you don't understand that if you speak to it in, in terms of like a spirit that's hovering around. We're going, wait a minute, what does this mean? How do we experience this, right? So the point is that these terms are used often in Scripture to give us understanding of that which otherwise we would have very limited, much less understanding or are not be able to fully grasp even to the point in which we do that which has been stated. But you notice that God not having hands in, he did not take and, and carve the mountains and such. And I, I want to just digress for a moment because I believe this is also important for you to consider if you have never have. When we look at even the landscape today of the world and the beauty of natural resources as they are, and the mountains, and the valleys, and the rivers, and all. Let us remember that we do not view things the way that God created them, because we are looking at a judged earth, not only judged by sin and under the condemnation of sin, but there was a worldwide flood that changed the entire landscape of everything that we know to be. And so what we call beauty in God's creation, it's still God created it, yes, 
but it is marred in creation because of sin and because of the judgment of God. And so when God created the earth and created the world, created the universe, created what is, we have to understand that it's not God taking his fingers and carving out the mountains as so many people have stated, which again would be an an anthropomorphic way of stating what happened in creation, but that's not even what Scripture says. If you remember, even in the account of creation, and I don't want to belabor the point here, but I do want to explain. In the account of creation, and God said, not God create formed in, with his fingers. No, God said, let there be light. God said, and God spoke, and it happened. Listen, do not, do not marginalize the authority and power of God's word, of God speaking. And so we see it was God spoke all it is into existence and then forming it by the power or authority of his word, we understand. We must remember that it was by Jesus Christ that the Father created all that it is, all that is, and that it is Jesus Christ who is the living word of God. This morning, I want to revisit some of the verses we referenced last week because of the connection they have, obviously, with both the, the, the uniqueness of the person and being of Christ, but also the uniqueness of the authority and power of Christ and the work of Christ. In other words, the connection is this. He can only do what he does because of who he is. And that has to do with his authority of his person. So while the works of Jesus do not define who he is, his authority and his works are as unique as he is. And the scriptures many of which we considered last week, testify to the truth that Jesus Christ is unique in his authority. In John 1, 1 through 3, and I've quoted some of this a moment ago, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made by him. How were things made? By the Word of God, the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And without him was not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, Paul wrote, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. It was the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Father created all that is. And this display of authority is unique. Listen, man has never created anything. Man has invented, man has been creative, because God is the creator, and we are, even though we are marred images of God, we still are creative because our creator is creative, but yet we do not have the ability to create, and especially creation in the sense that you create and make bring something out of nothing, that you speak it into being and speak it into existence. What other power is there to compare to that? Oh, we can destroy a lot of things, but we cannot make something out of nothing. God and the Lord Jesus Christ as God worked through his son, is unique in his authority and in his power as Paul is testifying concerning creation. Uh, 
All other power and authority was created by him and exists for him as well. Isn't that interesting? Paul not only speaks of creation here, but he speaks of all the powers that be and that have ever been or will ever be, how that they, are all, they all were ordained by God and created by him. All things in heaven, he says, and that, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Notice thrones. This is speaking of kingdoms. So all kingdoms were created by God. Dominion speaks of lordship. All lordships were created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Principality speaks of all rulers. And powers is all authority. In other words, there is nothing that can possibly exist in any capacity that was not ordained to be and created by the authority of the being of Christ. Things we see, things we don't see. All things were created by the living word of God, our Lord Jesus. Paul used two prepositions for a total of three times in this verse to explain the relationship between Jesus Christ and all of creation. Notice what he says. For by him were all things created. All things were created by him. And then he says, and for him. For him. We recognize the Godhead in creation as testified in Genesis 1.1. I told you we would be looking into this a little bit more. The name, or Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. And the name Elohim is plural in number, meaning it refers to more than one. Not meaning more than one God. It does not imply that at all. But does testify to the truth of the triune God, which includes the three distinct, again, persons of the eternal Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let me explain how that worked in creation. And you see this in Scripture testified. First, God the Father is the divine designer. He's the architect of all that is created. It is the purpose and plan of God the Father. But God the Son is the one who implemented the divine plan of God, speaking it into existence. And God the Spirit moved, provided order to that which God the Father ordained and God the Son created. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God God gave order to that which had no order and that which would have been in chaos otherwise it was created. God put it into order and you see the Godhead present in creation. Paul further explained in his letter to the church of Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, 5 and 6. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, I mentioned this a while ago, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God the Father of whom all are all things. Look, one God the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. One Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. This working of God in Christ was not limited to creation, but let me even more so emphasize this truth because this is truly the authority of Christ that is unique beyond any other authority that could be. The uniqueness of the authority of Christ is manifested as well in not only God's creative work, but also God's recreative work, the work of redemption. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, Paul wrote, For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. God the Father made peace through the blood of the the cross of the Lord Jesus so that God the Father might reconcile to himself all things. I say whether they be things in heaven or in earth, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, you know these verses. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Wait, if any man be in Christ, he is a new what? Creature, a new creation. We're talking about recreation. By the way, uh, just a side note here. When you look through Genesis, 
I've said this to you many times, but there's 50 chapters in Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, if you ask the average churchgoer today, what is Genesis about? They are going to say creation. Out of 50 chapters, only two deal with creation at all. And the other 48 have nothing to do with creation at all. So you cannot really believe, honestly, if you are a logically thinking person, rational to any degree, that a book has 50 chapters and two of the 50 deal with creation, that that's what the book's about. Now, it does testify of creation. It tells us the very, from, from God explains to us, the world was created, this is how it was created. And we're not given extreme detail there, except for the list of how on days that God created. But there are many things left there that are not spoken in detail, but only two chapters deal with that. From chapter 3, verse 15, many of you are aware of this, is what is referred to as a protevangelium. And that is the first mention of the good news, theologically speaking. It's the first mention of the good news. And that's when God is, is pronouncing judgment upon the serpent, upon Adam, upon Eve, because of sin. And he says there, of course, Thou put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to the serpent, between thy seed and her seed, uh, it shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. And so here he is prophesying of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, chapter 3, from the time of sin, all through to the point of the completion of the revealed truth and word of God as he has chosen to give it to us, through the book of Revelation, here's what you find. You don't find God talking about his creative work. You find God emphasizing his recreation, redeeming fallen mankind. And this is consistent throughout the scriptures. And so what we must recognize that while it is wonderful to see as Paul declares the authority of Christ and its uniqueness in creation, this is all leading us to a much greater truth than even creation itself in showing us the, uh, the authority of Christ being unique in his recreative work in redeeming us. He says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. Verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God the Father was in Christ the Son, reconciling the world unto himself, removing the enmity that existed, the hostility that existed, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So God's committed to us both the ministry and the word of reconciliation, which is the gospel. So we've been given the ministry of the gospel. We've been given the word of the gospel because God has removed the hostility that exists between us and him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus explained that it was his spirit that sealed this work which God the Father purposed in the son. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 and 22, Paul wrote. For all the promises of God the Father, he's referring to, in him, the son, Jesus, are yea, yes, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now, he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath appointed us is God, the Father he's referencing, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our lives. There you have the triune God right there. He says, God the Father has redeemed us by his Son and has sealed us with his Spirit. So in other words, just like you see God the Father being the divine architect, the divine 
divine planner of all that is. While Jesus the Son, the Word, by Christ, it, of God it was created, by Christ it was created, Christ the Word spoke it and implemented the purpose and plan of God in creation, and the Holy Spirit provided the order as he moved and, and ordered that which God determined to be. Just like that is true in creation, in recreation, God the Father is the design architect. He's the one who has purposed this redemption. The eternal purpose of God in Jesus Christ, Ephesians says. God the Son implemented the Father's purpose and plan of redemption. How are we redeemed? Oh, it's provide, God the Father has provided for us, but it is God the Son who implements the purpose and plan of the Father who says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He himself, no man could take his life, but he would lay it down. Why would he do such a thing? I came not to do my own will, Jesus said, but the will of him that sent me, the will of my Father. So God the Father orchestrated the purpose and plan of redemption. God the Son implemented the purpose and plan of redemption. And God the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is the one who perfects this redemptive work within us as he dwells within the believer. In Colossians 1.16, Paul then declared that all things were not only created by Jesus Christ, but as I mentioned, it was all created for Jesus Christ. Paul emphasized this truth in his epistle of Romans as well. Romans 11.36, which is our verse as a church. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I'm going to do something I normally don't do, but I'm going to ask you to be responsive in this with me, okay? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. From the moment of creation, all that was created was created for the Lord Jesus Christ. This sets the tone of the preeminence of Christ, which Paul emphasized in this epistle to the church at Colossae. Remember, the emphasis of Paul's writing, the thesis of Paul's writing is that Christ is preeminent. Jesus Christ is preeminent. Jesus Christ is unique in his authority. For while kingdoms rise, which are ordained of him, remember, there's no ruler that exists that was not placed there by God in the fulfillment of his purpose. Listen, we get really sidetracked here, especially as Americans, right? People think, oh, this can't be God's purpose. Listen, God's purpose and plan is unfolding regardless of what you think about it. And remember, every kingdom, every nation, every person will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. So kingdoms are going to rise and kingdoms are going to fall, and that's been throughout the history of mankind. But all that being said, there is only one kingdom that is eternal. And only one king one Lord who will eternally reign. Revelation eleven fifteen through 17, we read, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, Thy, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. The power, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is unique. For he's the only one who possibly could take the disqualified and the unqualified and make us to be qualified before the Father. There is 
no other. Again, I summarize in closing. Yeah, I filled in the blanks, I know. But summarize in closing. Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of us say, Amen. Let's stand together.